Wednesday evening, Amir Zarfatati, <laughs> I probably slaughtered that, a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli army, uh, we're going to show a video of him before our communion service. Uh, he spoke at the 2011 Pastors Conference out in California, and some tremendous insights as to the nation of Israel, where Israel is as a people, uh, their outlook upon what's going on in the world, um, their, their struggle to survive in a world that wants to see them destroyed. So come on out Wednesday evening. We'll be showing that video from the 2011 Pastors Conference, uh, and it's, it's very good, so you'll enjoy it. So. That being said, we're in Genesis chapter 24 this morning. We're looking at verses 54 through 67. And in chapter 24, we have a portrait of a trusted, faithful servant, Eliezer. But Eliezer, all through chapter 24, he is never named. He's only referred to as the servant. And his duty, his mission is to bring home a bride for his master Abraham's son, Isaac, thus Isaac also being his master. And we have here an example of the Holy Spirit of God being represented in Eliezer, and we also have the Holy Spirit working in humanity today to secure a bride for Christ. And the Holy Spirit, he's given the task of working in sinful men to bring us to Christ, to bring his master a bride. And he works in our lives to convict us of sin to realize our need of a savior. And we all know what it's like to feel the conviction of sin. It's a dreadful feeling. Let me remind you, I know you don't sin anymore, but it's a dreadful thing to be reminded of your sin and the need to repent. But once we accept Christ as our savior, he comes and he dwells within us and that's one of the glorious mysteries of Christianity, that Christ in us. And he does this via the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit in us living out the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit also gives us gifts, uh, not necessarily traits or talents, but he gives us gifts as he desires to help us live a useful Christian life, a life of service unto him. And in Acts 1-8, the whole theme of that book is uh, summed up in that verse where the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a life of a witness unto God. And so the Holy Spirit, that sort of unnamed, unglorified part of the Godhead working in us, content to be behind the scenes in our lives uh, 
but working within us. And as we have studied Eliezer, a type of the Holy Spirit, who went away and he found Rebecca, a woman, not just an ordinary woman, she is a woman of great character. And Eliezer has prayed for her to have several traits that were were good traits, you know, that she's to give him a drink of water and she's also then to offer to water the camels, which was a three to four hour chore in itself. And we have this doing and working of the Holy Spirit to acquire Isaac a bride. Eliezer is successful. He finds Rebecca. He, through his gifts and through his own character, he persuades Rebecca that Isaac is a good catch. <laughs> you know, she wants to go with him back to uh, Canaan, to Isaac, to a man that she doesn't know. So she must trust Eliezer completely that he is a good man and he speaks the truth and that Isaac, of course, is the good man and is to be her husband. So let's read the rest of chapter 24 and we pick it up in verse 54. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands and of ten thousand, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and she saw Isaac, and she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Quite a romantic story, even if it was an arranged marriage. <laughs> In verse 54, we have a request by this unnamed Eliezer. Send me on my way to my master. Allow me to complete my mission. Don't stop me or delay me. But Laban 
and Rebecca's mother. They want to celebrate. They want to go through the customs of celebrating uh, the bridal showers and all this kind of thing. And they say, let her stay 10 days with us. And then you can go. Then you can take her. But Eliezer, he wants to be on his way. He has found Rebecca. He has found Isaac's bride. God has blessed him and prospered his way. And he says, please do not hinder me from leaving. Let me complete my mission. And they said, well, we'll ask Rebecca. And if she's willing to go, then she can go. And Rebecca is willing to go with this man. And all she says is, I will go. But that's enough. Those happen to be words of faith. I will go to my bridegroom, a man that she has never met. Likewise, we, you and I, the bride of Christ, are willing to go to him, Jesus, whom we have never seen. And the world thinks that is foolish. That we base all our hope and faith upon a Jesus that we've never seen. Rebecca, she happens to be a person of means. She has wealth to herself. Um, not many of us have a private caregiver. Rebecca has her own nurse. Plus, she has handmaidens. And in verse 60, we read of the blessing that is given Rebecca by her, uh, her mom and her brother Laban. And then in verse uh, 60, it says, And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands and of ten thousand, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Even your enemies are going to respect you, Rebecca. So, very quickly, Rebecca and her maids, they arise, they join the caravan, they join Eliezer on this journey back to Cana on the camels. And this is journey is not just a short little trek. It's four to five hundred miles back to Cana. I'm sure that this probably took, if they're not pushing themselves, at least a month. They're on the road for one month. And I'm sure Rebecca uses this time of riding and walking and gathered around the campfires at night. And she wants to know what this Isaac man is like. This is her husband-to-be. Uh, she's probably asking Eliezer a series of questions. Is he a kind man? Is he a wise man? Is he worthy of my love? Is he good with children, you know? Is he tall, dark, and handsome? Show me a picture of him. Do something, you know? And all Eliezer can do is describe Isaac to her. But as the caravan, as it nears Bir Lahairoi, the area where Isaac lives, we find Isaac is out in the field. He's out there, he's meditating, and he's watching. He's looking for this caravan to return. He's looking for Eliezer to come back. 
there's nothing that we're told about him knowing if the bride is with Eliezer. I'm sure he's hoping. Now, we only have one chance for a first impression. Do you think Isaac is all washed up out there in the field? I think so. He he's took his bath. He has some good aftershave lotion on, some good smelling stuff. He may even have a new robe on. And he's out there and he's watching and he's waiting. For he does not want to be taken by surprise when his bride arrives. And it says, Isaac lifted his eyes. He's watching for his bride. He's watching for Eliezer and the caravan to return. And it says, Rebecca lifted her eyes. She's looking for her bridegroom. And Rebecca, before they get close enough to have conversation, Rebecca asks Eliezer, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? Eliezer says, It's my master's son. This is your husband to be. Now, try to grasp this. If Hollywood were to do this scene, we would have romantic music playing in the background. We would have the scene being set. But all we can do is just try to get a feel for this. And modesty takes over in Rebecca, and she covers her face with a veil, which is a custom of that part of the world. Isaac, he just can't run up and embrace Rebecca, so he, no doubt, he asks Eliezer, well, how was your trip? How did you meet Rebecca? Tell me all the details. And then we can almost hear Isaac say, enough of the chit-chat. I'm going to take her into my mother's tent, and she's going to be my wife. And this, to me, is the first negative thing spoken of Isaac, his mother's tent. That doesn't sit well with me. His mother's tent? Why doesn't he have his own tent? <laughs> you know, is Isaac a mama's boy? I think he is. Nobody cooked lamb chops like mommy. You know, what's going on here? And it says Isaac missed his mom so much that he's taken over her tent. And now Isaac is comforted after his mother's death. And I am poking fun at Isaac. Uh, families were very close in those days. But he is being a little touchy-feely for me, okay? <laughs> Isaac obviously loved his mom. And now Isaac is comforted with Rebecca, his new bride. And Rebecca loves her husband without having ever seen him. That is a demonstration of faith. It speaks very highly of Rebecca. All Rebecca knows about Isaac is what the servant Eliezer, a type of the Holy Spirit, has described to her. That's all she knows of this man that is her now her husband is what Eliezer has relayed to her. As the bride of Christ, have you ever thought about this? 
all we know about Christ is what the Holy Spirit has made known to us through his word and through other ways. The Holy Spirit has made Jesus alive to us in our hearts. When we first hear, or when we first, I should say, heard of Jesus as a child, or even as adults, can you remember that first reaction? Most of us can't. It, but it was most likely a reaction of love. I want to know this one that died for me. One willing to lay down his life to suffer for my salvation. The gospel, the good news of Christ, the Messiah, it is such good news that the world looks upon it as a fairy tale. They look at us and think that we're very foolish to believe that one man dying on a cross could secure salvation for us. They say it's too good to be true. That's why the gospel is called the good news. And for many carnal minds, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, seems like foolishness. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians. The Jews want a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews, or those like the Jews, coveting a sign, that can be a position of pride. A person that has an attitude of, show me, show me if you're real, Jesus, do something extraordinary to convince me is a very prideful position. It's an attitude before God that is not pleasing to God. And God happens to hold eternal life in his hand. Proverb tells us, Can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Can a created being say to God who created him, prove yourself to me? Think of the arrogance of that for a moment. That is probably why created man resists the truth of creation and drums up things like evolution. Jesus spoke of this proof that the Jews see, or the giving of the people of that generation a sign, and it's in Luke 11, 29 and 30. Let me read you those two verses. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Only one sign will be given to this evil generation. Now we must understand, we have to notice, unbelief 
is what Jesus nailed them on. And unbelief has its origin in evilness, not in facts. In evilness. Jesus does not point out the sins of that generation that he's talking to there in Luke 11. He doesn't talk about their overt sins uh, to this crowd. He only speaks of their unbelief. And as we look at the world around us, we can all have different ideas of what perhaps is the biggest sin the abortion issue, grievous sin, sexual sin, rampant in our society, greed, we face it every day, idolatry, seems like the whole world is going after other gods. But the world's biggest sin, and don't miss this, is unbelief. There's the biggest sin, it's unbelief. The sin which eventually damns every person who does not believe is unbelief. The sign, the proof, Jesus will display is the sign of Jonah. So what is the Lord talking about there? Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Jesus will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Now, when we study the little book of Jonah, it's a great little study, by the way, we understand that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is known for their cruelty, their evilness, their people are, are, are bad to say the least. In fact, Jonah would rather die then go to Nineveh. <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty strong, but it's, he said, throw me overboard. Jonah does not want to preach repentance to Nineveh. Can you imagine being on the streets of Nineveh? <laughs> that's the prophet Jonah, honey. He hates us. The prophet of God hating the people that he's to minister to. But God had to soften up Jonah a little bit, didn't he? So he brings along a whale. And in the hot, suffocating belly of this whale, 98.6 degrees, for three days and three nights... Literally, Jonah is in hell for three days and three nights. We can only imagine what it was like in that belly. In 1891, I looked this up to try to get my facts straight on the internet, <laughs> a whaling ship, the Star of the East, hunting whales uh, near the Falkland Islands, sent out two little boats to harpoon this whale one of the boats was capsized by a sperm whale. One of the men in the boat drowned, and the other man, another man, came up missing. The following day, 
after they harpooned this whale, they're cutting the whale up. And they saw some movement in the stomach of this whale, and they found James Bradley, unconscious but still alive. And they revived him by dousing him with seawater. And they said for two weeks he was a raving lunatic. But after he came to his senses, the only harmful effect upon him was he was totally bleached out. He had no color to his skin whatsoever and missing a lot of hair too. The stomach acids of this whale had removed hair and the color pigment of his skin. Now Jonah, three days, three nights in the whale, he's regurgitated up onto the shore by this whale, and then he goes into Nineveh. Three days, three nights in the whale, Jonah was probably a sight. No hair whatsoever, and he's all bleached out. But Jonah has a message. And he has no problem getting the attention of the people of Nineveh as they look at him. They go, wow, what is up with that guy? <laughs> but Jonah has a message. And it's repent. And all of Nineveh repents. And here in Luke, Jesus says, the only sign he will give this evil generation is his resurrection from the grave after three days. That is what Jesus is saying to this generation. The only sign. But consider the ministry of Jesus for a moment. Jesus has healed the deaf. There's deaf people walking around that now hear. He has restored sight to the blind. There's blind people that never could see before that now can see. On one occasion, he fed 5,000. On another, he fed 4,000. He has cast out demons of the possessed. He has cleansed lepers, which was unheard of in that day. And now, these Jews, his fellow countrymen, they seek a sign. How arrogant. In the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus say, uh, if you're not going to believe in my words, then believe the works that I do. But the evilness of unbelief is clearly seen when we read of the temptation of Christ by the devil. So turn to Luke 4, and we'll look at the first 13 verses in Luke 4. As you turn there, notice Satan's words to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, he'll say that twice times to Jesus here. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when he had ended his ended 
he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you should dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. When the Jews seeking a sign from Jesus, they're being just like Satan himself. They're being just like the devil who said, if you are the Christ, prove it. If you are the Son of God, do this. Modern day man cries out all the time, prove yourself to me, Jesus. Understand, Jesus refused to prove his deity to Satan. Jesus would not give the Jews of his day a sign or a proof that they wanted. He wouldn't do it. Jesus is God. He is totally secure in being God, and he will not stoop or lower himself to prove himself to man or to demons. Do not expect the eternal God and creator of this universe to jump through the hoops that some men have set up in their finite thinking. He's not going to do it. No sign will be given to this generation. But the Lord hasn't left us asking that question without supplying the answers. All the proof any believer needs is his own personal life and the change that has took place in his life from the way we were. Paul said, all things have become new for a believer. All things have become new. A believer when he converts, when he is saved, when he sets God as the king of his life, he no longer is completely self-centered. And before that, we are. 
it's that simple. We are totally self-centered. In Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You don't need anybody to convince you that you are a child of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you're his. And that is the only proof that we really need. So don't look for God to manifest himself or try to prove his reality to anyone. He's God. He's God. Let us fall into alignment with his word. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. If you happen to be here and you would like prayer, we have people that will pray for you. If you have needs in your life, perhaps a healing, provision, whatever your need is, we have people that will agree with you and pray with you. So don't leave here without getting prayer if you need prayer. So let's pray. Father God, first of all, we want to thank you, Jesus, for being God. Thank you for being all that we could ever want in a Savior. You made salvation so readily available to us. All we have to do is change the way we think and believe. In truth, all we have to do is repent. So, Lord, we come to you. And if we've never said these words to you before, we want to say them this morning. Forgive me for being a sinner. Take me into your family, Lord. Give me eternal life. Thank you for living, going to the cross, raising your, your son from the dead. We serve a living God. Thank you for that. Make that real to us. Make it alive to us. And let us be believing no longer being unbelieving. Thank you, Lord, again, for the truth of yourself. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes that truth alive to us. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. We pray and thank you in the name of Jesus.